This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. I'm taking a tour of this massive shrimping boat, the Barbara. It's moored on a dock in Aransas Pass. This is the off-season for shrimping in the Gulf. The engine noise is so loud, it's almost overpowering. And there's so much equipment, like ropes and pulleys and boxes, it's really easy to trip over all of it. The captain gives me a tour of the quarters for the deckhands. They're really tight. Some people can't make it on here for more than a few days before they beg to be carried back to land. Former prisoners often do the best on these boats because they're used to being in confined places. This boat goes to the Gulf for a few months at a time, and it's not year-round. They might only go out for four months a year and there's no guarantee they'll catch enough shrimp to actually make money. When Hurricane Katrina devastated the area in 2005, gas prices soared. People lost a lot of money. This is a tough business. This industry, the shrimping industry, is much smaller now here in Aransas Pass than it used to be. But shrimpers helped develop this town, and the people who worked on the boats in the Gulf could be shifty in the 1930s. Maybe they knew what happened to Dorothy Simons. We're back at the ocean, this time at night. Remember I said that the ocean plays a very important role in this story. The local teenagers liked to go swimming here after sunset. It felt a little dangerous. And it was. Dorothy and her friends liked to go to Redfish Bay. It's a triangular-shaped area between Aransas Pass and Port Aransas. Redfish Bay is bordered on the north by Aransas Bay and on the south by the Corpus Christi Ship Channel. It's not a large open water area. Redfish Bay is actually a complex set of islands and grass flats and channels, and it's really not that deep where Dorothy liked to swim. Texas in July is hot. So a nighttime swim sounds wonderful. You could take a small boat out if you were a fisherman, drop a line and catch redfish, of course, along with some black drum and crabs. But there might be something else in the water at night, the occasional shark. Dorothy had gone down there on July 29th, 1931, after choir practice. Maybe swimming at night wasn't a good idea. The Simons family home was quiet that night, but the following morning, everything changed. Agnes Simons was in a panic. Her adored daughter was nowhere to be found and no one seemed to know anything. Of course, this is before cell phones. By the 1930s, the old candlestick phones were replaced with the more current rotary dial phones. 
And before the 1930s, you would have to go through an operator to reach someone in an emergency, like the one happening to the Simons family when Dorothy went missing. Early that Friday evening, 18-year-old Dorothy Simons left her home on South Commercial Street. Her youngest brother, Joe, sat on the porch, watching his sister walk towards St. Mary's Catholic Church. Dorothy was on her way to choir practice, or so she said. Dorothy was responsible, but she was a young adult who was still exploring her independence. And doesn't everyone deserve a few secrets? At this point, that's all we know for sure. And that's what's so fascinating and frustrating about this case. We might have a lot of details, but most of them are murky at best. My investigative research, along with Bill Strain's, turned up all kinds of rumors about what happened next. I found many of them on Bill's blog, and I dug deep to find additional ones, like through newspaper articles or police reports. It's not easy finding information from a century ago in a small town. A lot of people don't even know about this story. And even local news reports from that time were conflicting. In my experience, sometimes older newspapers can be really, really inaccurate. I spent several years researching my book, American Sherlock, which is about a forensic scientist. The newspapers in the 1920s misspelled his name three different ways. That makes research really hard. In Dorothy's case, I had another challenge, deciphering fact from fiction in Bill Strain's extensive blog. He relied heavily on personal memory, memories from when he was a very young boy, maybe three or four. And remember, Bill started working on this after he retired, when he was about 70 years old. That's a big gap in time. Bill's son, Michael, was very upfront about his dad's limitations. I'm sure his memory was composed of maybe some vague memories he had when when he was four years old. But some of the things he wrote, I'm sure, were things he remembered hearing. According to him, this had been all the talk of Aranza's past for years after the event. It it was not like, uh, you know, they talked about it for six months and quit. I think this was something that was a topic of conversation in Aranza's past, and maybe with my grandparents for, for years after. Did he read about it later? Uh, he talked about reading that detective magazine that had a story. But I think it was probably a composite of some kind of really early childhood memories, along with remembering hearing people talk about it or whatever. But as far as as, as I recall, that first thing he wrote was really just, um, uh, you know, from his memories. After we got the newspaper articles, then he started noticing what was wrong with his memory. Bill rarely talked to his wife, Sherry, about the case. This was really a story that he and his son followed. But as he grew older, Dorothy's death became more important to Bill. What did he tell you about this case? And I don't mean details necessarily like what happens in the case. How do you think this case, the Dorothy Simons case, fit into his life? He mentioned it through the years, once in a while, if we would be at Aranzas Pass or something that might remind him of it, he would mention that this had happened. But that was about all. I mean, I I would not have 
think even remembered that he'd said anything about it until he got on this obsession with it. He retired at 70 years old in uh, 1998 and suddenly he needed something to keep him off the streets and out of trouble. (laughs) Sherry says that Bill had just learned how to use a computer and email when he started researching this. And those things allowed him to do a lot more digging. He learned how to get online and he met Google and uh, realized all the information that was available out there. I think he began to, to search for things. And having just spent 10 years on the university police department in San Marcos, he was interested, I think, in cold cases and things that he could find on Google and begin to gather information for. So I'm assuming that somewhere along there, Dorothy came from out of the depths of his mind and he began to see what he could gather on that. And Dorothy's death would be Bill's most maddening cold case. And mine. Full disclosure here, I'm sometimes pretty intimidated by cold cases, especially unsolved cold cases or stories that don't have a tidy ending. So we're dealing with some murky details around this case. Some of that's because of Bill's limited memory. And some of it is because of small-town rumors and outrageous lies. And none of that helped investigators. They were stymied, and it enraged Dorothy's family. But more on that shortly. So here's what we do know. At least, here's what I've been able to piece together from the information that Bill and I were able to access. On that Thursday, the 29th of July, Dorothy told her mother that she'd be spending the night with a friend named Mrs. Fowler. Dorothy said they'd be attending choir practice together. If it seems weird that an 18-year-old would be spending the night with someone who was married, remember, people got married really, really early during that time period. Dorothy never mentioned the part about spending the night to her younger brother, Joe, A little boy wouldn't care about that anyway. But he did remember the part about Dorothy going to church. We've now heard a lot of descriptions of Dorothy's beautiful singing voice, and we know that her family, like most residents of Aransas Pass, were avid churchgoers. So choir practice seems plausible enough. And Dorothy seemed like an honest young woman. Remember, Agnes Simons thought the world of her only daughter. She was perfect. Why wouldn't she believe Dorothy? I think any trusting parent would. And sometimes that's a really big mistake. This feels like a good time to admit that I'm not that trusting. As a crime historian and journalist, that's kind of my job, to have doubts. I'm supposed to be suspicious, and that's what drives me to dig for the truth and to constantly follow my instincts. And that applies to my twin daughters, who are 12. I don't always trust them when they're out with their friends, and so I make sure that they know I can pop up any time to check in. But Agnes Simons and her husband never seemed to do that. They didn't check on Dorothy at choir practice. They didn't pop over to Mrs. Fowler's house. After all, their daughter was 18 and a young adult. But young adults sometimes make bad decisions. And it turns out that Dorothy made a big one. And in this case, instinctually... Something felt a little off about her story. Who was Dorothy Simons? I want to revisit something that's been stuck in the back of my mind, having read Bill Strain's blog so many times. He called Dorothy an enigma. 
I wanted to start building my own impression of Dorothy. So I went beyond the preliminary detective work Bill had already done, and I started searching for photos. I figured I had little hope of finding many Simon's family photos. With everyone so strapped for cash during the Great Depression, it must have been a luxury to own a personal camera. But I thought I might have some luck if I could find Dorothy's high school yearbook. I checked the records for the only high school in town, Aransas Pass High School, and I turned up nothing. So I looked for the San Patricio County census records from 1930. Every 10 years, a census worker would knock on your front door and ask you a series of questions. These days, the government sends you a document and the year 2020 was actually the first year that you could respond over the internet. The census worker in 1930 would ask you for your address and your job and your race, as well as your education status. They even asked if you could read and write. Those census records were recorded the year before Dorothy died. Her parents marked in the education category for her, no, but indicated that she could read and write. Why would she not have a high school diploma at age 18? That did seem strange, but perhaps the Great Depression had forced Dorothy out of school and into odd jobs, even at age 16. And her sister-in-law, Helen, did say that she was taking classes at the Catholic Church. Maybe Dorothy intended to go back to school. I wondered if she might have been able to take the GED. The GED was originally developed in 1942. It was created because there were a lot of American men sent to fight overseas in World War II, and they left without graduating high school. And then there were those people who had to leave high school to support their families during the war. Going back to school wasn't really an option. But in 1931, there was no GED, so Dorothy would have to return to high school to get her diploma. But she didn't. Anyway, it was good to have more information about Dorothy Simons. Something J.B. Simons told me got me thinking. He described the memories his father Joe had shared from the night that Dorothy disappeared. According to the court records, she went to choir practice. But she didn't tell Dad she was going to choir practice. And all of the stories in the newspaper kept calling her a choir <laughs> a choir person, a choir lady. And then one of the papers said she was the leader of the choir, which was not true. I never heard my father say anything about her being in the choir or my grandmother. Apparently, she went someplace. Whether or not Dorothy did go to choir practice, we may never know for sure. We do know that Dorothy went somewhere and that may well have been Mrs. Fowler's house. I went back and scoured Bill's blog to see what I could find. He copied a statement from an article in the Corpus Christi Caller. It read, Dorothy Simon's stepfather told of the girl leaving home Thursday night for choir practice and to spend the night with Mrs. Fowler. He said when he returned home late Friday, he learned from his wife what happened and instituted a search for the girl. As the mother of two daughters, I can only imagine how frantic Agnes Simons must have been when she realized that Dorothy hadn't returned by Friday morning. The same was probably true for Dorothy's stepfather, Howard. But now we'll meet our first suspicious character, Dorothy's biological father. His name was Ralph Johnson. He was Agnes's first husband, but he lived out of state. They met when they were young back in their home state of Indiana. 
Grandma Agnes was, was married to Ralph Johnson in Henry County, and they lived in Bluntsville. And Johnson was just a very disreputable person. He was constantly stealing silver and china from my grandmother and, and selling it, making money. He was stealing money out of her bank accounts and those kind of things. Nothing that I've learned about Ralph Johnson is good. He seemed like an opportunist, a man with a foot in the criminal world of Indiana. It was scary for Dorothy's mother, Agnes, because she had a lot to lose, like money and freedom and something even more precious, it turns out. She had a small farm and quite a bit of money that had been left to her. She had enough of that and divorced him. And he was angry and decided he was going to either abduct Dorothy, and that's that's where Dorothy came from, that union, abduct Dorothy and hold her for ransom to get more money out of my grandmother. And he set out a, a hit on her. So clearly, Ralph Johnson had a motive. From what JB told me, it's a really good thing that his grandmother Agnes had the strength and the financial means to leave Ralph Johnson. JB gave me the clear impression that Ralph was a pretty shady guy. We'll be hearing more about Ralph later. A lot more. Back in Aransas Pass, there was another man who played a big role in Dorothy's life. His name was John Newton Yarberry. Newton was 22 years old, and he came from a very prominent local family. His father held an important position at Humble Oil Company, one of the largest employers in the area. The Yarburys were wealthy and well-respected. They had been residents of Aransas Pass for almost three decades. Newton apparently worked as a barber, although one paper said he was also employed at Central Power and Light Company in its ice department. According to J.P. Simons, Newton didn't have the best reputation. Yarbury was was known as kind of a an arrogant little, you know, shit. He uh, felt like he had, oh, there's, there's a term for that or a word for that, uh, that he was entitled and lived in the higher end of the society of Aransas Pass, whatever that looks like. Nice-looking guy, and going with the best-looking gal in town, and other guys apparently said that. Newton Yarbury was handsome, with dark hair, light eyes, tan skin. He wasn't particularly tall, but he was thin and muscular. He was a James Dean before there was a James Dean. The actor was actually born that same year, in 1931. Dorothy had been going out with Newton off and on for about two years. I wonder how the Simons felt about their daughter dating him. I wonder if her parents knew that Dorothy was seeing boys at all. That night, the night that Dorothy planned to stay at Mrs. Fowler's, she told her friends that she was going to meet Newton Yarberry downtown. They wanted to go for an evening swim in the bay. Dorothy asked Mrs. Fowler not to mention this to her mother because she knew Agnes would be really angry. This sounds like a warning sign. Why would Dorothy ask Mrs. Fowler to lie? What did she have to hide? Was she trying to downplay her relationship with Newton or did he hold some kind of control over Dorothy? I think he just perceived her as an object, something that, you know, he could play with. But she had to know that he was a dangerous person. Uh, One of the stories I read... He had brought her home from drinking and pushed her down on the bed. But Newton's family had a positive reputation in Aransas Pass. They had been there for almost two decades. 
Newton didn't have a criminal report, at least not one I could find. Bill Strain spoke to a friend of Newton's, a man named Jimmy. Jimmy said that everyone thought Newton was a nice guy. So now we have conflicting information about Newton Yarberry too. I asked Helen Simons what her husband, Joe, remembered about the night Dorothy disappeared. All he talked about, he said, I was the last person that talked to her because uh, they had a dog named uh, Dixie, I believe his name. And uh, this fellow picked her up. They were going to go swimming. And uh, so he and told Dorothy to take the dog back to the house. So she came back to the house after she left, and, and she told Joe, says, I'm been gone for a while. I'm, we're going to go swimming, and you take care of Daisy, or, you know, Dixie. Daisy, Dixie, Dixie. Dixie. <clears throat> and uh, don't let her follow me any anymore. He's okay, I won't. And uh, he said I was the last person in the house to talk to her. And everybody said, well, where did she go? And I said, all I know, she said, they're going swimming. And they always, everybody swam in the bay. So I'm assuming they thought she's going to be at the bay. Here's what a local newspaper said. Miss Simons left her watch, her tam, her stockings and purse at the Fowler's, saying that she would return by 10 or 10.30 o'clock. When she did not return, a search was made with no results. Mrs. Simon's dress and shoes and underclothing had not been found at a late hour Sunday night. Authorities believe that the girl and her companion dressed for bathing near the seawall where they could easily plunge into the water. That was a newspaper excerpt from the Corpus Christi Caller. Here's what it also said. When Miss Simons did not return home Friday, her parents became alarmed and Sheriff Frank Hunt and his deputies were notified of the missing girl. The search for Dorothy began almost immediately after her parents reported her missing. Her disappearance shook the town of Aransas Pass. When a pretty young woman goes missing in a small town, news can travel fast, especially if she's a pretty white woman. More on that later. The sheriff and his deputies collected statements from Mrs. Fowler and Dorothy's brother, Joe, the last two people to have seen Dorothy. Or, actually, the last two people to admit they had seen Dorothy. Newton Yarberry initially denied being with Dorothy the previous night when he talked to police. But he said that he did see her that afternoon. And maybe that's true. This early into the investigation, there's no way to prove he was lying. In any good investigation, it's important to talk to direct connections of the victim, the people in their circle. But it's also crucial to remember the broader picture. As I mentioned in our first episode, the economic turmoil of the Great Depression forced many people to hit the road, roaming from town to town in search of work opportunities. Since fishing was the main industry in Aransas Pass, the town may have attracted some questionable characters. I asked Michael Strain what he knew about that time period. So this was in 31. What's your understanding of what Aransas Pass was like when your dad was growing up? Well, you know, Aransas Pass, when my dad was growing up, was rough and tumble. I worked as a food stamp worker temporarily in the 70s, and it was rough and tumble in the 70s. I'm sure it probably is now. 
It has a lot of different things. There's fishermen. It's always had a fishing industry, and fishermen tend to be rough and tumble. The time that we're talking about here, it was during the Depression. People were poor. It was a hard time for everybody. I think my dad does a really good job of describing that time and his memory of it. You can probably guess the direction that I'm heading in here. What if an outsider had been driven by poverty and desperation when he arrived to Arantis Pass? And he came to town looking for work on the fishing boats or the shrimping boats. There were stories about crude roughnecks roaming around the town in the 1930s. Shrimpers were people that a lot of them didn't have a huge education. Some of them did. The captains were tend to be a little bit more educated and driven. And the, the crew, you know, it was a hard job. It was a dirty job. You know, they were the kind of guys that would work just to get by, go on a trip. And as soon as they got in, they would spend all their money, a lot of times on drugs and things that they shouldn't. But this is Prohibition, right? During Prohibition, this town was wide open. You know, a lot of illegal activities, a lot of gambling. The Balinese was a kind of a bar that had an illegal gambling joint running inside of it. And because they had to get on by ferry, you know, they had lookouts on the ferry. And when they knew a federal agent was coming in, by the time they got on the island, everything was all cleaned up. What if a complete stranger had been responsible for Dorothy's disappearance? We know that most murders are committed by people who know their victims. So it would be highly unusual. But then this was an unusual town. Of course, there's another possibility that I knew needed to be explored. Agnes Simon's first husband, Ralph Johnson, Dorothy's biological father, and his plot to kidnap his daughter. Let's talk a little more about Dorothy's background. I asked Helen Simons to tell me more about Dorothy's father in particular. It was a really a, a strange situation, I guess you'd call it. Agnes and her husband had divorced, and he was adamant that he was going to have Dorothy with him, and she said, no, you're not. So that's what started all off, I'm guessing. Started what off? He said, I'll have her one way or another, and turned around and walked out. And that's when her great-grandfather found out, because he was friends with the police chief there, and the police chief told Agnes, you take Dorothy and get out of town because your ex-husband is going to have her kidnapped by some real gangsters out of Chicago. And he, the police chief told her, you get out of town, this is for real, I can't control this. That's terrifying. It was to her. So she had two half-brothers that lived in Oklahoma, and she decided to take Dorothy and go live with them for a while. So that's what she did, so that kept the fact that she still had control of Dorothy, and her husband didn't have any chance of getting her I wonder why he fought so hard for Dorothy. I mean, you would think that he would not want a dependent with him. I wonder what that was about. Money, because Agnes's grandfather was considered the second richest man in Henry County. And he left what turned out to be over half of his estate to Agnes. No wonder Agnes decided to leave Indiana. She left to protect Dorothy. And Newton Yarbury was intent on protecting himself. 
When police came to visit him, Newton swore that he hadn't seen Dorothy on the night she disappeared. The witnesses who saw him approaching her downtown that night were wrong. There were rumors that swirled all around Aranza's pass. Who might be involved? It seems like her biological father, Ralph Johnson, should have been an immediate suspect. Some of the rumors came from Newton's supporters. They said that Ralph Johnson had been sending letters to Dorothy and that she might have run away to reunite with him in Indiana, even though she knew all about his terrible history. We know that Ralph Johnson had a criminal reputation. People called him a con artist. And of course, there was that story that he had been involved with gangsters in Chicago and that he had threatened to kidnap Dorothy for a ransom. Had Dorothy's father tracked her down, maybe he reached out in hope of a reunion. Or did he somehow terrorize Dorothy? Had he threatened to come to Texas and take her away? Did Dorothy run away because she lived in fear of him? All of these questions are possibilities. And that's why Newton Yarbury's supporters offered them up. Did he and did they want to help, or were they trying to send investigators off on a different path? At this point in the story, what happened the night Dorothy disappeared is still a mystery. What I do know from years of doing true crime research is that there are several reasons why young women go missing. There are abductions and kidnappings, but some run away because of struggles with addiction or simply out of rebellion, and others run to escape domestic violence and abuse. And the way we talk about violence against women is deeply concerning to Karen Kilgariff, who is the host of My Favorite Murder. There's nothing compelling or sexy about domestic violence and the way that it escalates and the way that women get murdered by the people that they're married to or the people that they're supposed to be in love with. That's the story that people have the hardest time talking about because it's a secret. It's a secret in families. People hold those secrets for years. It's, it's a wound. It's so much pain. And so that's the kind of thing where it isn't just, it isn't a movie. And it isn't a story. This is really happening to this girl. I find these statistics disturbing. More women under the age of 21 go missing than in any other age group. In 2020, well over 200,000 females under 21 were reported missing. For women 21 and older, the number was closer to 60,000. That's a huge difference. It's not clear why the gap is so wide or what the numbers might have looked like back in the 1930s. I do find it sad that at 18, Dorothy was right at the age when women today are most at risk. This case will turn out to have a myriad of suspects. So I wanted to get an expert's opinion on how different aspects of the criminal mind work. I first spoke with Paul Holes when I was interviewing him for my other show, Wicked Words. Paul is a cold case investigator and a former forensic scientist from Northern California. And he had spent decades using investigative, behavioral, and forensic techniques to solve high-profile crimes, including the Golden State Killer case. For me, as an investigator who is just trying to understand the offender, 
the organized and disorganized categories are extremely invaluable. And to compare and contrast, your disorganized offender is the offender that generally is on the spectrum of having possibly a psychosis or a mental illness. They're not thinking about preserving their own freedom to try to get away with the crime. They act impulsively. They commit the crime. That spontaneous aspect leads to them leaving a lot of evidence. Witnesses see them coming and going. They're leaving their DNA. They're leaving their latents. There was no planning. Whereas your more organized offender, if you're dealing with a very sophisticated and intelligent offender, they plan their crimes. And it's not just who is going to be my victim and how am I going to get to that person after I do what I want to do? How am I going to get away with the crime? Right now, Dorothy is missing. But if she were murdered, what type of killer could have done it? Organized or disorganized? The list of persons of interest seemed to be growing as her family feared that she wouldn't be found alive. Investigators needed to know if her father, Ralph Johnson, had been in Texas. Newton Yarbury was her boyfriend, but he wasn't the only man in Dorothy's life. And now one of the other men was talking to the sheriff. And there was another boy involved, right? Tom Connor. Yeah. Do you know anything about Tom Connor? Uh, he was apparently a friend of Newton Yarbury's. He had been out and around that night in town. Somebody had seen him chatting with her in front of the post office, but they, it looks like they just arrested all the likely suspects. He, he did get arrested. I had to do some digging through newspaper archives to break all that down. The night Dorothy apparently went to choir practice, she asked a young man named Tom Connor to walk her to the Jackson Hotel at 8.30 p.m. Then she immediately asked him to leave. She said that she was afraid that Newton Yarbury would see them together and would get jealous and then angry. That's according to an eyewitness report. From what we know about Newton, he did have quite a temper. Maybe he did see Dorothy with Tom and got jealous. That's just speculation on my part, though. But what if it's true? And what if that jealousy was so intense it threw Newton Yarbury into a fit of violent rage? Tom Connor was added to the list of suspects in Dorothy's disappearance. And not long after that, new witnesses began to come forward. There was a report that someone saw Dorothy walk inside the Aransas Pass post office at 9 p.m. on the 29th of July. The witness said that after two or three minutes, Dorothy left the building. Then she crossed the street to join a man, a man who looked a lot like Newton Yarbury. Or was it Tom Connor? Remember, Newton had denied that he had seen Dorothy that night after he saw her at his house. But here's one of those moments where details get murky yet again. The police pressed the witness for more information, and soon he admitted that he couldn't positively identify Newton as the man he saw Dorothy talking to. The witness was asked then if the man he saw could have been Tom Connor. He shook his head and answered that he wasn't sure. Tom Connor and Newton Yarbury kind of looked alike, but they certainly had differences. Tom wasn't as tan, but he was tall with dark hair that was slicked back. Newton was slightly shorter with longer hair that sort of flopped on top. Tom just looked older because he was older. He was 30, and Newton was only 22. The witness said he saw the man in the dark, so he couldn't be sure, but he believed that the man looked more like Newton than Tom. 
I wanted to expand my investigation beyond the growing list of possible suspects, so I decided to dig into the police reports. It turns out there had been an unusual amount of criminal activity that weekend in late July. I searched the Associated Press archives. One of the first articles I found had a startling headline. It read, Auto accidents take toll, eight dead. Drownings and burnings and murder by strangulation also included. Four were shot. The article said that 17 Texans had died that weekend from violent deaths. Was Dorothy Simons one of them? There's a triangular-shaped area between Aransas Pass and Port Aransas called Redfish Bay. These days, it's protected by the Texas Fish and Wildlife Department. It's home to fragile biological communities. With shallow seagrass beds and oyster reefs and marshes and mangroves, it's popular with local fishermen. People also like to swim and canoe and kayak there, too. Back in the 1930s, Redfish Bay was an idyllic place. At least Bill Strain thought so. He wrote in his blog, After several school days a week, I would grab my rod and reel and tackle box and head for the boat channel, which was about a four-block walk, and then climb over the seawall. I always caught fish. Three speckled trout and a redfish would be a typical catch. I could either bring them home for my mother to cook, I had to clean them, or I could sell them at the channel market. Once they weighed my fish, I got 35 cents for the whole batch. I was rich. The boat channel became very important, especially to male children of the community. You graduated from being a little boy to big boy when you could swim the boat channel to the spoil bank and then swim back again. I remember returning from the spoil bank, huffing and puffing from a long stretch of fast dog paddling, but I had made it. And at recess the next day, it would be talked about on the playground. I was now a big guy. I've been to Redfish Bay now several times. Things have changed a lot since 1931, so I really love Bill's description of what it was like when he was a child. Makes me feel like I've stepped back a century in time. In the summer of 1931, a camper named H.B. Threlkeld was enjoying Redfish Bay too. The wind swirled around the water as his daughter skipped along on the sand. The camper was walking along the edge of the water with his wife and the little girl in search of firewood. But they found something very different sticking up from the moss and the mud. They found a human hand, and it looked like a woman's hand. I know I've said this a few times, but this truly was like something from a horror movie. Was this Dorothy's body? There was so much crime in Aransas Pass, it might not have been her, Or did someone have an accident on the shore and then they died and the sand eventually covered up their body? If it was Dorothy, was a local person responsible? So many questions. And we have four more episodes in which to answer them. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right... The seawall and all that was right along in here. So apparently the body was drugged over the seawall and dropped in here. You know, I I wouldn't say it's an age per se. I I would say that it's race-based. It's like, you know, if you're black and brown and you're missing, you're basically on your own. 
He, he talked about it after we got to talking about it. When he finally told me he had had a sister that was killed, I said, well, how was she killed? You know, you're going to ask. And uh, he said, well, come right down to it. I guess you'd call her. She was murdered. And I said, oh, what a horrible thing. No wonder Agnes had an attitude about things and people. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Laura Sobel, and Alexis Amorosi. Co-writers Laura Sobel and Kate Winkler Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can hear every episode one week early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.